0: Well, amen. John chapter 3. John chapter 3 verses 1 through 15 will be our text this morning. Now, as you're turning there, you may take a look at me this morning and think I'm feeling a little bit patriotic with the red, white, and blue, but I assure you that's not the case. I'm feeling a world series for these Bravos coming. So, uh, I know that... uh, Yeah, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. So it was a great uh, treat for me late last night, early into early this morning, uh, for a cap on my birthday. So I'm really appreciative the Braves knew exactly what I wanted for my birthday and wanted to share that gift with me so I can celebrate with all of you guys. Well, as this week has been going by and thinking about this text and thinking about my birthday, we come to a text that is all about birth, rather a rebirth. Now, I don't know how you guys feel about birthdays, but I just really don't like birthdays. They feel odd to me. I get a couple head nods going here. Some of you guys may love birthdays. Let's talk after and see why. (laughs) Birthdays feel so odd to me. I, I, I didn't cause myself to be born. There's nothing great about that. It's if anything it should be celebrated, it's my parents that that they not only birthed me, but then raised me and survived it. But birthdays are odd. You're just going to a next day, and you've made it around the sun another 365 days, but you did nothing to cause it. And people want to give you presents, and they can say, this is your birthday, you can do whatever you want to do, when that is not the case whatsoever. You see, birthdays are odd because it's, celebrating something we're not responsible for. And I think in the text this morning, what we will see is this rebirth is something worth celebrating. It's something actually worth rejoicing over with the greatest exultation that we could possibly have because we did nothing to cause it to come to pass. We get to rejoice at the work of the Holy Spirit. The These 15 verses are some of the most precious in all of scripture because they reveal to us the hinges, if you will, that swing wide the the door of the gospel to the believer, that we will examine regeneration, which means new life, of how the Spirit has caused us to be reborn. Now, In this body, as I stand here and look amongst each and every one of you, it is my ardent prayer that this has already occurred, that the Spirit has caused you indeed to be reborn, that you are a daughter or a son of God. And if not, that the Spirit would show you the glory of Christ this morning and cause you to be reborn. But for those of us that are, We have all the more need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, as John has been encouraging us to do this morning, not perhaps unto salvation if we are already there, but unto a life of believing that's marked by joy, by that exaltation of what we feel for birthdays at times. I believe this is the main point we should see this morning, that we are to rejoice that the Spirit has caused you to be born again. Join me in the reading of God's Word as I believe this truth is illuminated through this discourse with Jesus and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. God's Word, John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. as your body this morning, for this truth to be open to us. The mystery of the gospel and all of its platitudes and all of its sustaining power is such a beautiful truth that we have been born again by your spirit, that you have caused it to happen. Would whatever proper examination of our heart need be this morning, I pray that you would accomplish it according to your will, that we would be properly informed, encouraged, exhorted, challenged, and built up in you, Christ Jesus, that we may be the church, the Branch Church Milledgeville, that you have supreme desire for us to be in this city. Father, I pray all these things according to your will and by the power of your Spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, to understand what's going on here, let's just dissect for a moment what's happening here. There's Nicodemus, this Pharisee of Pharisees, that's coming to Christ at night. The Pharisees are one that John the Baptist has been calling out. It's one that Christ was saying they weren't believing. These were the religious rulers of the day. And he comes and he makes a statement to Christ to which Christ responds with truly, truly. Then he asks a question and Christ responds yet again with truly, truly. And a third question. I believe in that statement and these two questions of Nicodemus, we will find ourselves this morning. Asking, how can these things be? These things are so great, I can't seem to wrap my head around of how I've been born again. John is teaching us this truth of this interaction with the Pharisee for the same purpose of this entire letter, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. The first thing I believe the text reveals is that we are born again in verses 1 through 3. Now, this man, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, was a ruler of the Jews. Verse 2 This man came to Jesus by night. Many commentators would speculate that he came by night out of shame or guilt, that the other Pharisees would not approve of his being there, but I believe there's more going on in the text here. I believe, with the revealed truth of Scripture, that Nicodemus does become a follower of Christ, many of our church fathers would say. I believe this is a, a reverence for Christ, a respecting of his time that he would have ministry to do during the day, and he comes to him at night. Now, obviously, could both be true? Absolutely. But I believe this is what we're seeing here. He makes a statement to Jesus, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher. Come from God, but because no one can do these signs unless God is with them. Again, we've seen this theme, this imagery of signs over and over and over again thus far in the Gospel of John, and it's sufficient enough to know that Jesus is a teacher based on these signs. That's what the purpose of these signs were, to affirm that he was a teacher, but not enough for saving faith, not enough to be redeemed. This is why Christ answers him. Notice that, is that not odd verbiage in verse three? He answered him, do you not answer questions, not statements? He answers him because he understands that there's a question behind the question. Have you ever been asked a question and you know that someone has a follow-up question or something deeper, a there? Nicodemus is making a statement saying, we know you're a teacher. He's saying, if you're a teacher, teach me. If you're a teacher, I'm coming to you I see these signs. I want to believe, but teach me. Jesus says, you want to be taught? Let me teach you something. Truly, truly. We will see this repetition of truly, truly three times in our text this morning. What Jesus is doing is drawing his attention. It's as if though what I just did in clapping my hands to grasp your attention, Christ is saying what I am about to say is preeminently important. I need your attention, you want to be taught, listen to my words. He says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again. This is a, uh, a bit of a verbiage that has been lost on us in the 21st century. I think you hear it a lot more, perhaps if you've been in a, a more established church, when someone says, I'm a born again believer that I've been born again, I've been saved. You see it in movies, I've been born again. Yet the truth of this doctrine has lost its luster over time, and the doctrine of regeneration has fallen on hard times previous to today, and I would say all but dismissed or unknown entirely in the church today. That regeneration, the rebirth of being born again, that something must happen previous to you being saved is something that is not heralded from these pulpits as they should be. Now, that's not a a knock on the church as much as it is a plea for us as the people of God to see this truth and demand it to be taught and to be reclaimed, that we must be born again. This is taught all throughout the New Testament. In 1 Peter one three, we have been born anew by God's great mercy. Peter knew this truth. He says that we have been born anew from an imperishable seed. Paul in Romans 6.1, we have died with Jesus and we're rising anew as a new creation. 1 Corinthians 3, that new believers are referred to as newborn babes. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're a new creation in Jesus. Galatians 6, in Jesus, we are new creations. Ephesians, we're a new man in Christ, created after God in righteousness. And in Hebrews, at the beginning of our Christian life, we are like children. This is the consistent testimony of the New Testament, that we must be born again. What does this mean, to be born again? It means that when we were born into this world, we were born dead. Dead in our trespasses and sin, we were born not physically dead, but spiritually dead. The most important part of man, our soul, is dead to the most important thing in life, God. We were born spiritually stillborn. And we must have a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit take place in our heart that precedes our faith, that we must be given this faith and be brought to life in order to exercise any faith in Christ whatsoever. The implications for us as the church are profound. This is a new birth, which means a new creation. This is not improving the old. This faith of regeneration, of being given the faith to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, takes place, and you are in that moment as the Holy Spirit quickens you, brings you to spiritual life in order to believe and exercise this faith, you are a new creation, not improving the old. This means that we're not doing anything in this process. Did you cause yourself to be born? Surely not. Not. Can you do things to help sustain your life once you've been born? Absolutely. Good diet, good exercise, taking care of yourself, driving not recklessly like everyone seems to do in Milledgeville. But what has truly sustained your life? The very person who brought you to life in the first place, Christ. What this means in the new birth for you is that you've been given a truly new identity, that you once were dead but now you're alive in Christ you once were alienated strangers from God but now you are sons and daughters what it means for you if you are to walk in this truth is that in those moments of the desperation of your soul when you feel the weight of your depravity when you feel your sinfulness when you feel like we just sung this morning prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, you can remember your identity is kept in Christ because he brought you to life. I would argue for us as a church, this is such a needed truth to settle in. Because our identity often can be found in being reformed. You can talk reformed. You can live a reformed life, you can have a reformed bookshelf full of every book that you have, but it does not mean that you're a son or daughter of Christ. To be brought to life means that we live the life that we've been brought to. It does not mean we simply believe it. Belief, make no mistake, is the first step. We must believe that we have been born again. We must be convicted of that. We must be convicted of the truth but we must live in this identity. This gives us every reason to rejoice this morning. Why? Because the burden of responsibility of maintaining this joy in Christ, maintaining faith in Christ, maintaining this new life given to you is not on you, believer. It is on the hands of Christ on Calvary as he was poured out for you, the primary responsibility. You absolutely have a moral responsibility and agency in which you vivify these truths. You bring to life the gospel in your life as you remind yourself of it, as you live it out. But man, I was thinking about this this week, and I think in our men's Bible study, Pastor Bailey said something that just hit me. We say it a lot, about sharing the gospel with others, but he shared it and it's, it's a simply profound truth that we are to share the gospel with one another in the body, often. And the gospel starts with this truth that the Holy Spirit has caused us to be born again, to take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh to believe this is the starting blocks of the race of faith. This is the hinge that swings wide the door of the gospel. We need to be reminded of this truth all the more. Is it not true if you start on a trajectory, askew at the beginning, that you will end so far from where you want to be at the end? We have got to start here. Sovereign grace, unheralded pleasure of the Father to look upon wretches such as you and I and cause us to be born again. What truth, what reason to rejoice that the Spirit has caused us to be born again? Not only are we born again, but we are born of the Spirit. Verses four through eight teach us this truth. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? If Nicodemus started with a statement, he here then follows up with a question and a question that you can see reveals his lack of understanding. How can a man be born when he is old? Now, if you were careful here in reading this as if though you were actually there in this conversation, you're not detecting just ignorance here. This man is a teacher. He's a Pharisee. He knows what you're detecting here is a bit of pride, a bit of, Something that we do well here is a bit of snark. Can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter in second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, even if you were to take the most charitable approach to this passage, you see that he is just trying to engage with the conversation, but Jesus' answer, as it always is, gets right to the heart of the matter. Again, Jesus says in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, he's saying, again, pay attention, Nicodemus, You come here with all of your preconceptions and your notions of wanting to understand God, of how you want to understand God. And we would do well if we were to sit back and listen to this response of Christ and not approach Scripture how we want to approach. But let Scripture speak for Scripture because it is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Jesus says, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean, water and the Spirit? There are many different interpretations of this passage, and the spectrum ranges from right out heretical to pretty probable to uh, not that likely. It's a vast spectrum. I'll give you a couple of them, just an overview on what I believe this means. Some would teach this heretically to mean that unless you are baptized, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I would point to the thief on the cross and rest my case. From moving from there, some would say this is, unless you're born of the water, meaning from your, you need a physical birth, you're born through the water that comes in childbirth, and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. I would say that's pretty plausible, unless you're born. I don't think you can be reborn. But what I believe Christ is pointing to here is something that he does all throughout the Gospel of John that we've seen. He is pointing to himself to be the fulfillment of prophecy of the Messiah. In the Old Testament, there was such a connection between the water and spirit, and that God promised through the prophets that he would pour out his spirit as if though he was pouring out water. That it's a renewal, that's a cleansing. It's what the vessels of the, holding the purification jars of the water that turned to wine were all about. He teaches this in Ezekiel 36, 25-27. I say he because Christ is the word. He taught this through his prophet. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness and from all of your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If there were a text that were the penultimate text of regeneration, the Old Testament would be that. Notice the connection there between I will pour out my spirit as water and what is water done? What is water used for? I hope everyone took a shower this morning when they came into worship. Water is used to remove filth but cannot only water cleanse the outside, but we need the spirit to cleanse the inside and give us this new heart of regeneration. Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter here, saying that Nicodemus and we must be born of the spirit. This is a truth that must be unsettling for each and every one of us that just because you profess Christ, just because you come into worship, you tithe regularly, that you serve a body, that you say you believe, does not make you a son or daughter of Christ. Now you say, Pastor Kyle, that that seems awfully uncharitable that someone would profess to believe, that they would even do things in line with showing of believing, and yet you would not say that they're a son or daughter of Christ, and I would say your qualm is not with me. Your unsettledness in your spirit at that tough exhortation is not with me, it's with scripture. Jesus himself is whom you have a qualm with if that rubs you in an uncomfortable way this morning because he says unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And this is why I say this doctrine has fallen on such hard times because this is a tough truth that must be proclaimed. When we go out into the city and evangelize, do we say you must be born again? Or do we simply reduce this miraculous work of the spirit of causing rebirth? Do we reduce it to a prayer? Do we reduce it to a life of being a good person? Do we reduce it and take something that is so majestic and so holy and so set apart and so God-only empowered and place it within our feeble hands and say, you can do this. You and your brokenness, you and your perpetual sinfulness, you and your weakness, you and your discouragement. Do we see how Feeble, that is. We can just look at creation and see that creation was brought forth by a majestic creator. And in the new creation, why would we deem that anything else besides that creator can recreate? You wouldn't ever look at a sunset, a mountain range, a newborn babe and say that we can do that. Yet, what we see in the fleshly in the earthly, we neglect in the spiritual, which is all the more profound, and say that we can. What are the consequences of this truth of being born of the Spirit for us? It frees us. Freedom. Galatians 5, 1 says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is Freedom. If you're born of the Spirit, you are free of your own self effort. You're free of your own attempts of self righteousness. You're free from the false facade that's cracking that everyone can see of legalism. You're free from trying to fake it till you make it. You're free. You're free to be what? A slave to Christ a life of righteousness. You're free to walk in the joy of your father. You're free to live this Christian life of being a newborn child. I don't know about you guys, but I, I love times of renewal. What I mean by is, as much as my birthday this week was one that was odd, it's, it can feel like a, a refresh. Okay, I've got a whole new year to be the man of God that I want to be, to be the husband, the pastor, the friend. Do you feel that perhaps New Year's, New Year's resolutions, you feel there's a bit of freedom to walk in this newness. Well, if the Spirit has already came in, given you a new heart, cleansed you from all of your unrighteousness, made you a new child, you have that newness, not just when the calendar marks another day, not just on your birthday, not just at New Year's. You have that ability to walk in that newness every single moment. Because from the moment Christ caused you to be reborn until this very moment in the breath that you're drawing now, he is sustaining you, he is cleansing you, The, the sin that lies dormant in your flesh, he is killing by the power of the Spirit. As you're sitting here listening to the word of God that he is bringing to life in you, Man, you have newness in every moment. What happens in your life if you live this way? Wandering becomes fewer and fewer and fewer and far between. Staying close to your father becomes a joy, not something when you sin that you kind of want to hide from his presence. It makes living in fellowship together all the more sweeter and enjoyable. Walking in this truth of being born of the Spirit, such a reason to rejoice. I pray that you see that. This is yet another reason we could herald back to this is the beginning of our belief system. It's the reason why we can believe because we've been given this faith. So if we were to walk in this level of freedom, your faith is going to explode because you see that your faith is not dependent upon your faith. The faith of a mustard seed is the mustard seed that was planted by God that he is causing to grow. You lack faith. You're tired, you're weary of the Christian life. I pray that you would see that you're born of the Spirit Not only is the truth that we are born again and born of the Spirit, but the impetus of all of this is that we are born from belief. Verses 9 through 15 teaches this truth. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? We just took time to expound upon how these things could be in in this conversation. You see that Nicodemus cannot understand because he has not yet been born again, to receive this truth, to understand what Christ is saying to him, the very Lamb of God standing before him. He asked this question, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? Do not understand these things. He is here, rebuking this teacher of Israel because they do not understand. Take a look back with me at verse eight. Jesus is using an illustration here for a teacher. If you're a teacher, you know illustrations are so helpful. Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, say if your sermon were to be an outline that the argumentation are the pillars, but illustration are the windows that let the light in to let people understand. Jesus here is helping trying to help Nicodemus understand and help us understand. He's rebuking him. He's saying, I'm giving you an illustration. In verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes or goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What he's saying is the wind, we don't know where it comes and goes. You step outside these doors, you can feel it, and on a morning like this morning, you say, praise the Lord, that's a gust from heaven's gates. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going to. You don't know its trajectory you don't you can feel its effects, but you don't see so it is with the spirit. the spirit is free to regenerate and to save whomever, however, whenever he wants. yet Nicodemus did not understand this truth. This is why Jesus in verse ten gently rebukes, "Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things' Verse 11, he demands that attention again. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus here includes himself with, namely, John the Baptist of the testimony that John the Baptist brought. Pastor Bailey led us through that testimony so faithfully. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But also with all the prophets that came before the last prophet heralding of the Christ. Born from belief, Jesus is saying, if you are to be born again, you must hear this gospel truth. You must hear a testimony. You must hear truth. Jesus says, we, have, we speak of what we know. Jesus knows these things to be because he caused all things to be. We witness to what we have seen. Christ has seen it all. He is omniscient as we learned last week, and he is revealing to us in our finite eyes, in our dimly view of eternity, of us peering through a keyhole, he is letting us in on the majesty of the gospel, that we will not understand this glory of the gospel this side of eternity because it is so majestic, so profound that the spotless lamb of God would die for wretched sinners like you and I upon a cross that was deserved for broken people in his entire life of righteousness is given to us. And that we've been reborn, that we're a new creation. These truths are too wonderful for us to behold. This is why in verse 12, Jesus asked him this prodding question. It's a question we must ask of ourselves this morning If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Earthly things, about the wind, where it goes, about birth. We get to see beautiful babies born all the time, very earthly things, very poignant illustrations, very graspable, attainable truths. Yet there's so much more to the gospel we must ask ourselves this question often. Is the gospel something that we seek to aggrandize in a way that we neglect the simple truth of it? Born dead, brought to life by the life of Christ and we live in light of that light. There's so many earthly things here that we try to understand I have a hard time of grasping our minds around, and yet, at times, myself, you, many others, we can walk in a level of pride, can we not? We've got this doctrine down pat. We got this Christian life down pat. We know how to encourage one another. We know how to receive accountability. We know how to disciple. Looking at your faces, I see that inwardly, none of you believe that. You've heard me mention pride many times from this pulpit, even of recent. I'm convicted and convinced that it it's something we must put to death in this body. Starting with me. Because if we are truly born from belief, It's belief as Isaiah believed. Woe is me, I'm undone. Who am I that the God of the universe would look upon me? David, who is man that you're mindful of him? The Apostle Paul, I am the least of these. And why I labor here in this point is because I hear that from our lips often but functionally, we must depend on the spirit to put to death the sin of flesh in our bodies. Romans 8, 13, if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What are these heavenly things that Jesus references? It's the things that he is about to live out. The life of righteousness imputed, a death upon a cross publicly, dead, and risen to life, ascended in glory, and imminently returning are the heavenly things. These truths, this truth that we believe in that caused us to be born again, James, the brother of Jesus speaks of in James 1:18 he speaks of God bringing us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth brought us to life. Romans 1 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel truth is what brings us to life. This gospel truth is revealed in verses 13 through 15. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The ascended, meaning ascended in these heavenly knowledge and these understandings of this beautiful perspective of the gospel. No one has understood it except him who was already there and saw it manifest. John, the writer of this gospel, gets a glimpse of it in the Revelation. Just a glimpse. And he's grasping for words saying the throne is like a, like a diamond thing. It's like a sea of of glass. Verse 14, Jesus prophesies. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Numbers 21, five through nine, take note. This is of what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus here. Jesus in this conversation is referring to a very uh, familiar text as one that would be memorized by every single Pharisee and many just young Jewish boys as they would have them Pentateuch memorized. I'll read it for us and we can see this correlation of what we're to believe in that causes this rebirth. Numbers 21 5, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? I wonder if we ask that question here. Why have you brought me to Milledgeville? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord, notice the Lord, sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What a beautiful picture of Christ that as he was raised up on a pole, and when we are snake bitten by our own depravity, our own discouragement, our own weak flesh, our own desire for sin, that. Those things are thorn in the flesh, but God sent those fiery serpents because what we can see that in our trials, they are not trials for the Christian that will lead us to death, but they are trials and tribulations that will get us to turn our eyes to Christ and see him lifted up, to see Christ magnified, to see everything in our life as an opportunity to worship. This is belief This is the starting line of the Christian faith. It's the run of the Christian faith. It is the wind in your sails. It's the rejuvenation that you need. And it is the finish line. This is why we believe that regeneration must happen at the preaching of the gospel. And this is why no true life in Christ can happen apart from the preaching of the gospel. No anecdote, no story, no compelling speaker can cause what only the Holy Spirit can do. This is why you go with truth. This is why you memorize scripture. This is why you are ardently steadfast in this truth. This is what gets you fired up, truth. This causes so many ripple effects for us to see that we're born of belief. So many ramifications. First and foremost, proper self-examination. When we see our eyes down and our head downcast and our hands feeling weak and our knees feeling like jelly and our feet feeling like as if they're stuck in sa- quicksand and we can't go in this Christian life, what do we do? We look to the hills from which our help comes from. The hill, the Mount Calvary, Golgotha, where Christ was crucified. Proper examination. Proper examination leads to life for the Christian. Not life apathetic, not life passive, but life to the fullest. Life experienced as Christ intended with true joy, true love, true self-control. Every fruit of the Spirit born in your heart seen manifest and pushed out because you can't contain it because the Spirit birthed it within you and is causing it to bear for his glory's sake and your good. Seeing that we're born of this belief has massive implications and ramifications for our humility, for our humility. When we look upon a wounded Savior, upon a cross that was risen in victory, We can't help but see. Because a sinful Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just looked upon him and pardoned me. I don't stand here and talk about humility and pride in any other way, perhaps to give us tangible first steps of what to do, to not just simply cut us, but to build us up in it. The first step for us in this proper humility is looking at Christ far more than we look at ourselves. What puffs up besides looking in a mirror? What else? Proper humility not only looks at Christ without looking at self, it stops looking at neighbor for any other purpose besides loving neighbor. If we're born of the Spirit, we see that we're all born of the Spirit that we are all fallible, that we are all sinful, that we're not running this race against one another but with one another. And when you are running a race together, when you are in a team, you know you are as strong as the weakest link. Leaders don't lead through discouragement. Leaders lead through exhortation of proper rebuke when necessary, but always encouragement and grace that's found at the foot of the cross. That's not just leaders of us as a church leaders of your deacons and elders. It's every single one of us as we lead one another, as you lead your wife in family worship, as you lead your friend in repentance, as you lead your children in family worship. And the final ramification, I believe, when we see that we're born of belief, is that we're desperate for the Spirit. Take not your Spirit from me. That we're desperate to abide in the presence of the Almighty. As a child is desperate for their parents when they're lost in a store, So we are to be desperate for our Father when we're lost in the sea of our own sin and discouragement. Desperate for more of his peace. Desperate for more of who he is. Desperate to see his fruit bear in our life. Desperate to see the Spirit move among this body. Desperate to see sin killed in this congregation. Desperate to see the Spirit pour out on the city of Milledgeville and men and women come to know Christ? When's the last time you've been desperate for something? Been desperate, perhaps on a long run, for just a little bit of water? Desperate for air if you spent too much time under the water as a kids swimming around and you come up and you gasp, a desperate gasp for air, desperate for approval, desperate for a relationship, desperate for an easier job. We know desperation, church, but because we are born of belief, we must believe the greatest desperation we must have is for more and more of the Holy Spirit manifest in our lives and in this church body and in this city. We have every reason to rejoice in Christ because he has caused us through his spirit to be born again, the, has fulfilled the greatest desperation of our soul, or an alienation and our damnation apart from Christ. We have every reason to rejoice because we're adopted. We have every reason to rejoice because we are children of God. We have every reason to rejoice because the gospel mandate before us is promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against her church. It's the word of Christ himself. We have every reason to rejoice because Christ is king, enthroned, crowned now and for all eternity. We have every reason to rejoice in this fellowship although we be small, we be strong in the word and in truth. We have every reason to rejoice because we have been born again into a family, a a chosen priesthood, a royal nation, a people for God's own possession. We don't have to grapple in the dark as Nicodemus coming to Jesus. We don't have to sit back and wonder how can these things be? We know we can go out in full assurance knowing that Jesus is ours. I pray we go out with that fire in our veins this week and rejoicing all the more in our King. Father, thank you that you have sent your Spirit to cause us to be born again. That we have been born of your spirit and washed in your blood. That we are yours. That we don't grapple in the dark, but we walk in light. The light of your spirit and illuminating this truth that we have been reborn, that we are new that every moment is an opportunity to walk in that newness, to walk in that grace, to walk in that love. And I pray we'd see each and every moment as that opportunity. So Father, we love you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for first loving us. It's in your name we pray, amen.